Hey friend, this is Ryan Thomas. We're so blessed and grateful you're listening to On the Road and supporting Faith Radio. You are quite simply the best and we appreciate you so much. Enjoy the show. Discovering stories of courage, determination, and hope. Welcome to Faith Radio's On the Road. Now, here's Ryan Thomas. Bravery is something that we all wish we had more of. Today, we welcome back a gentleman who is blessed with a generous dose of it. Mr. Chad Robichaud served eight deployments to Afghanistan as a Special Operations Force Recon Marine and a DOD contractor. He's a celebrated mixed martial arts champion and has advised the government on veterans' affairs. But this man of great strength faced down some of life's darkest foes, battling PTSD, even doubting his own will to live, and discovering that even his bravery wasn't enough. Itself. So, how does Chad's story end up at a place of extraordinary hope? We find out together today on the road. Chad is out with the freshly updated book, An Unfair Advantage Victory in the Midst of Battle, that traces his journey in a gripping way. And what is really fun about this for us, Chad, is that we welcomed you for the first time about three years ago. And in the years since, you've appeared all over media advocating for veterans and talking about your faith. God has really been using you in some pretty special ways, my friend. Yeah, well, I've just been very blessed to be uh, be able to just share what God's done in my life, uh, and and just be able to speak on just such important uh, topics in our country. You know, the state of veterans affairs, uh, veterans care, spiritual solutions for veterans care, and so it's just been a, it's been an amazing time, and I'm just pinching myself to be part of it at times, <laughs> and uh, honored to do it. Well, it's an honor to have you here, and uh, when we say that, we really mean it. And as we unwrap this story, you'll begin to see exactly what we mean by that. But before we begin the journey with you of where life has taken you, where God has taken you, I wonder if we start where you begin. As far as a faith background, when you were growing up, who was God to you? Did you have a faith growing up, sir? Well, I grew up in uh, I grew up in southern Louisiana, where it's very... Uh culturally catholic sure and i think so like the the cultural norm is to be part of catholic church and a big catholic family um but i never really was introduced to a personal relationship with christ uh as i know it today um when i was 14 years old my my brother was he was shot and killed and um you know i didn't have a very functional family i had a pretty dysfunctional family and a and it was a christian family i knew and i was very good friends with and still am today actually uh they brought me to a uh, their their church uh, just to really wrap their arms around me while I was going wow. through a difficult time of my brother being killed, and uh, and I remember the pastor there giving a, a sermon and doing an altar call at the end, and I felt like you know this guy's he's talking he's, he's talking right to me, and uh, and you know there was probably no obstacle that could have been in the way for me going up to the front of that church and and uh, and having an encounter with Christ at just fourteen years old. But wow. beyond that decision, which I believe was a really authentic decision between me and uh, my heart and and, uh, and Christ in the moment, there was no follow up. There was no discipleship. I didn't sure. live where this family lived, and uh, and you know it wouldn't be until you know years years and years later in my thirties, thirty five years old, before I actually had that encounter with Christ again at, oh, at that heartfelt, authentic level. I want to explore just the incredible circumstances that lead you to that point in your 30s. But losing your brother like that is, 
I just can't imagine. But the thing about you, about your family is that legacy of military service and service to your country is so strong that you, you continue to want to serve, right? Can you talk a little bit just about that pull in a country where in a volunteer military, so few of us have served? Yeah, I think the numbers right now is a half a percent of our population serves in the military. Uh, So it's always just amazing to me to see our young young men and women right now that are raising their hand and making an oath to serve at a time when our country's been at war for over 20 years. It's just such an incredible sacrifice for them to do that. Um, You know, for me, uh, I had always had a desire to be in the military from a young age, probably uh, when I was 13 and my brother was 14 years old, we decided we were going to do it to... One, I think we were just adventurous young boys, always playing in the woods, swimming in the bayous of Louisiana, and watching Navy SEAL videos, and we were like, wanted to be in some type of special operations or something sure. like that. We we, we, th- we also thought it would be a great way to escape that dysfunctional li- ch- childhood lifestyle. And, uh, you know, my, my father was a Marine from Vietnam, so uh, even though my father was you know, very physically abusive to us and a lot of problems with that, that he's that he suffered after his service. The one thing that always made my dad proud and uh, and really made him happy was the fact that he was a United States Marine. And uh, but I kept that desire to join and serve, and uh, and and wanted to become a Marine. And being a Marine, uh, and the fact that my dad was a Marine is something that, uh, that's our strong heritage in our family. I'm proud of. In fact, yeah. not only my my dad and myself, but my oldest son Hunter is a Marine. He just got back from Afghanistan several months ago. And served, uh, making the third generation of combat Marines. And my youngest son, Hayden, is in Marine Corps boot camp right now. Oh, so, my. Big history of Marine Corps in our family. And uh, so, obviously, we, we love the Marine Corps. Oh, man. Well, thank you so much, by the way, from all of us for your service, for your family's service, because it is, it's a remarkable thing. And it's, it's a heroic thing just to volunteer to step forward. So, thank you so much. Absolutely. Now, you paint the picture in chapter one of the book of your first deployment to Afghanistan. And what struck me is, first of all, your lack of fear or anxiety really at all. You explain how hard it was to leave your family, but you were ready to go. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't a kid when I, when, I, when Afghanistan happened. I had been in military for almost 10 years and all special operations and lots of training, lots of experience. I was with a you know tier one JSOC Joint Special Operations Command Task Force, so I was with like the the best team I could possibly be with, and so a lot of things were different than you know some eighteen year old guy that's you know naive to what he was getting into. So I, was, I had a lot of confidence in that and in my abilities. Uh, I would have thought I was prepared uh, to do what I was trained to do, um, but uh, yeah, I know now that uh. I wasn't fully prepared. Military talks about the four pillars of resiliency, mind, body, spirit, social, being mentally tough, physically tough, uh, having a strong spiritual foundation, being socially connected with the right people. And I would have said I had all those blocks checked, probably because I had to wear Christian stamped in my dog tag. But the truth is, I I didn't have a strong spiritual foundation. And uh, and I think I made a deliberate decision to put God on a shelf and I could do faith later on in life. But right here in the battlefield, you know, there's no place for people of faith or or morality or, or those things to be in present in the battlefield and yeah. i felt like i had to choose between masculinity warriorness and christianity and and i chose to put that on the side and i believe that left a giant hole inside of my heart that uh you know brought a darkness over me and i filled with hate and anger and bitterness and and eventually it just crushed me man i, I would just want to dig down just a little bit on your experience in the battlefield because this has been such a 
really a formative experience for the entire country, but you were there, you, you experienced it on the ground and the scenes that you encountered during that first tour in Afghanistan are just fascinating. I mean, on the one hand, there's the tragedy of the suffering the Taliban inflicted and just the condition of the people. On the other, you describe this real hope that they have and a profound sense of gratitude they had for you and to the United States as a whole. What was it like to take both of those in at the same time? You know, when I went to Afghanistan, it was it was because of 9-11 and, and uh, there was a strong sense of patriotism to to fight back and uh, and uh, to rectify that wrong that was under our country that's perpetrated in our country and uh but really quickly because of the nature of my job living with the afghan people and eating dinner with their families playing soccer with their kids getting immersed immersed in their culture and learning who the taliban was uh not only did i develop develop a deep hatred for the taliban but i developed a deep love for the afghan people that i worked with uh those who are patriots and want to fight for their country they want to be free from the oppression of the ide- ideological uh, oppression that the Taliban put on them, the, the oppression of the women, young men, uh, sexual molestation of little boys and little girls, like all these things that they endured. Um, I mean, uh, you, you read in chapter one, the killing pool talks about like, you know, some of the executions that occurred and just the horrific things the Taliban did. It, I, I developed a real heart for helping these people um, fight for their their livelihood back. Mm. You know, 99% of military people are locked behind a base and they go out to, with those who do go out, go out and fight the bad guys and they go back into the base. So I had a unique perspective to see from their, from through their life and their eyes, yeah. how appreciative they were for the U.S. military to go there and defend them where they couldn't defend themselves and, uh, and help liberate them. Yeah. And I think that's a different, a different perspective than we think of when we think of and why we were in Afghanistan. We are welcoming Mr. Chad Robichaud back to On the Road today for Faith Radio. Chad served as a force recon marine. He was an MMA champ, a speaker today, the founder and president of the Mighty Oaks Warrior Programs Ministry to Veterans. And the book he's written, which is just gripping, is called An Unfair Advantage, Victory in the Midst of Battle. Uh, one of the most just fascinating elements of the book is the relationships, the friendships that you develop. There's this scene where you watch, I believe it must've been the 2004 presidential election at your friend Bashir's house that stuck out to me. Could you talk a little bit about that and, and why it was so memorable, why you included it in the book? Yeah, it was just a, it was just a profound moment. I mean, we're uh, something I would never have expected to experience, experience in Afghanistan. And, you know, uh, I, you know, uh, I was at, it was 2004, uh, November of 2004, presidential election time. And, uh, you know, President Bush and, and John Kerry were, uh, were going neck and neck. And, on, on, and uh, there was this big uh, party at my friend Bashir's house. And, uh, and it was an election party. They watched it on television. They had, it was, it was full, like wall to wall people there. They had food. And it was, it was like a giant Super Bowl party you see in the United <laughs> States, probably bigger. And, uh, and they were so, I was, I was blown away because they were so captivated on the, uh, on, on the U S election. And I remember wow. thinking like, wow, I've never seen in all my life, anyone in the United States so captivated in, in, in a presidential election. I and mean, when we live here, you know, we, it's uh, our president. And I remember thinking like, wow, this is pretty crazy. Why would these people care so much? And it was just a understanding of how important uh, America is in the world, how important a, a U.S. election is in this world, because when America is strong and the world is a safer place. 
Well, each of your chapters in An Unfair Advantage tells a story from your career as a warrior, and then on a parallel track shares truth from a biblical warrior. You retell a story that could be pulled right out of a Hollywood script, but is in fact the real thing in the opening of chapter two. You're driving along one day in 2004, and you get the sense that there's this Toyota pickup full of men with AK-47s. They just might be after you. Can you take us back there? That was an epic scene, if ever there was one. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, I love to share a story. I, I titled it Get Off the X, and uh, I mean, it was, we were, I was with one other partner. It was a Navy SEAL uh, partner of mine, and uh, the two of us were in civilian clothes in a civilian vehicle. We didn't have much for weapons. We each had a pistol, so we weren't looking to get in trouble in, her, in a fight. And uh, when I looked in my rearview mirror, I saw a Hilux pickup truck uh, just loaded with guys that looked like the Taliban. You know, uh, big beards, tribal clothing, AK-47 assault rifles. We had one guy with an RPG, a rocket propelled grenade launcher, uh, and to make sure they weren't following us. I did a technique called deviating a route, which you take a right off the. I took a right off Jalalabad Road. I was heading into the eastern side of the capital city of Kabul, and so I took a right off Jalalabad Road, made the block, and when I made the block, they continued to follow us. And when I turned back on my original route, that that technique is to confirm to me that they were in fact following me. And but it also lets them know that I knew that they were following me, and that, so it began a pretty aggressive pursuit of us. I went into the city of Kabul to try to lose them in the busyness, and I don't know where all the listeners live, but if you think traffic's bad where you live, I can promise you it has nothing on, like, third world traffic, <laughs> Kabul traffic. And, uh, you know, there was no stoplights, no street signs. It's just packed with cars. And I got to a major intersection called Masood Circle, and when I got to Masood Circle, the traffic started to congest and, and stopped. And, uh, and I didn't have anywhere to go to get through that intersection. Somehow they got around us about 20 yards in front of us and created a roadblock so we couldn't get out. And uh, I remember the passenger stepped out. He had a, he has a he had AK-47 as well. He, he was really calling me, closed the door. He looked at me and put his hand up for me to stop my vehicle. Really bad situation. I mean, this is, a, this is where the get off the X comes because that's what uh, this is. You're, you're on the X. The X is an ambush site. It's a kill zone. Hmm. A couple of things you learn in training about the X is, you know, number one, you have to be able to recognize that you're on the, neck, the X. And number two, you have to get off the X. And so, you know, it, you, I knew I was in a bad situation, and you had to get off of that, that X in that situation. Uh, thank God for military training. Every year I used to go to a place called Bill Scott Raceway, and you learn how to do pursuit, inner pursuit driving and uh-huh. crash cars. And, and I knew this was a roadblock situation. I had to execute a ramming technique, and I hit the gas, I aimed my vehicle towards theirs, and probably one of my favorite memories of Afghanistan is when I smashed in that truck to knock it out of the way was seeing little Taliban guys fly out the back. <laughs> a, few of them, a few of them actually jumped before I hit them. And then I you know, knocked the vehicle out of the way and was able to get off that intersection. Kind of, I think I might have wrote in the book. It's kind of funny story about the the policeman that was trying to stop us, and then he realized we were going to run him over, and he actually helped us get off the intersection. <laughs> but uh, you know, I I think that's you know I go into it in the chapter. You know, you don't have to be in Iraq or Afghanistan or a situation like that to find yourself an X. I think we all find ourselves an X in life, and if we follow those rules, you know, you both identify when we're in bad situations in life and then make a decision to move forward and um you know it that's uh kind of where i found myself mm-hmm. years later coming home after my deployment diagnosed with ptsd dealing with uh divorce suicide all those things that i struggle with my family i struggle with i came home and many warriors struggle with today i found myself in that x again and had to make those decisions do it can i recognize that i'm in a bad situation and am i gonna make a decision to get off the x and move forward in life and 
you know, thankfully I had the right people around me to help me do that. You, before you come back and share this journey, it's pretty clear that the more you saw there in Afghanistan, the more it changed you. And you write about a decision that you made while you were still there that after what you had seen, you just could not be a Christian anymore. What led you to that place? Well, I think seeing, uh, you know, just the, the horrific things that we were never, you know, created or intended to see or see or do and participate in or, or witness. I mean, um, uh, there's a, I think in one of the chapters I write about the girl on Chicken Street and seeing this just innocent little girl who we were interacting with and, you know, uh, buying newspapers from and talking to. We've seen her all the time and this beautiful little girl and her sister and they're just out there doing life and and uh, they don't care about poor or conflict. And and uh, right when we walked away from them, a Chechen suicide bomber it blew himself up to try to kill himself next to some policemen and, and uh, consequently killed killed her and some other children. And, and uh, you know, seeing those things happen and you ask the same question that many people have asked, you know, before me, if there's a loving God, you know, why would he allow, you know, such evil things to take place to good or innocent people? And uh, that's a question that I had to battle with for some time until really seeking the answers and not just coming to my own um, conclusions, uh, really seeking answers to understand. Now, there is so much here in terms of the meat of the book and how these things take place, but with the limited time we have, uh, you serve multiple deployments there to Afghanistan. You have a distinguished career in the military service. Uh, when you do return home, you start to deal with panic attacks, uh, PTSD diagnosis, uh, departure from at, that active duty. But then there's this second career that you become really well known for, just a talented and a very successful MMA fighter. Uh, you have this passion for what you're doing, but you describe it in the book as basically saying that all this success you were having, opening your own gym, in a sense, you were using it as a crutch. What do you mean by that? Yeah, martial arts is something I did my whole life. I've been doing it since I was five years old. So uh, when I came home, was dealing with PTSD and you know panic attacks and literally feeling like, you know, if anybody's ever dealt with panic attacks before, dealing with feeling like you're literally going to die. Uh, uh, your body's going to shut down. It's, it was uh, very therapeutic and helpful for me to get on those mats and start training again and wrestling and doing jiu-jitsu. And, and uh, you can't think about Afghanistan and the problems you're having when you're training. So mm. I just stayed as busy as I could with that and, and found success there. Uh, I was I had already fought professionally on the side of the, in the military. So uh, so just going back into that, jumping right back in, uh, I started having a really successful run as a pro fighter. Um, as a business owner, I ended up with a thousand students in my school. As a fighter, professional fighter, I won a world title. I was ranked number six in the world wow. uh, as a flyweight. It, on the surface, it looked like I would have, you know, not been dealing with anything. But yeah. the truth is, I was still dealing with uh, terrible panic attacks, anxiety, depression. Uh, my home was a mess. My I was a tyrant to my wife and children because I was just so angry and frustrated and and really lacked empathy. Um, and then. Uh, and then, uh, you know, it all came to a head. We, I ended up in a, walking out of, because my marriage was essentially over living in the same home, but we ended up walking out of a relationship with my wife into relationships with other women. And uh, we decided to get divorced and sold our home and moved in two separate apartments. And, uh, and it was during that time that I, alone in the apartment, that I came to this conclusion that my family would be sad without me. 
but they would be better off. I realized that I was a problem. And that same hopeless thought finds a home in the hearts of over 20 veterans every single day. If you don't know, there's over 20 veterans a day take their life. And Man. they believe that they're, you know, again, my family and my loved ones would be sad without me, but they're going to be better off. And I made the decision. Uh, I made an attempt to take my life. I sit in my closet with my pistol and had a Glock 22 pistol, a party caliber uh, pistol. And I put my family pictures on the floor around me and, and uh, try to build up the courage to put that pistol to my head and pull the trigger. And, and uh, but one thing that kept me from doing it is every time that I put that gun to my head, this overwhelming thought would come over me of who was going to find me, like a kind of foreshadow of how it would play out. And uh, the only person that had a key to my apartment besides me at the time was my oldest son, Hunter. Mm-hmm. And that was enough to pump the brakes and, 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 and stop. But the next day I was back at it again, trying to have the courage to, to do that and pull that trigger. And one of those mornings that I was there, I was in that closet with a pistol and I heard a knock on the door. I wasn't going to answer it, but then I heard my wife announce her voice. And when she said something, I, something in me, like maybe shame, I actually hid that gun under a blanket, which she would have never seen. It was my closet in my apartment, but I hid that gun. I went to the door and we got in this argument. And in the middle of the argument, she asked me a question that uh, one challenged me and two, I believe, saved my life. She asked me how I could do everything I did in the military. We met when we were 17 and 18, so she saw me become a recon Marine and trained for all these schools and this difficult training and deployment workups and going to these deployments for eight times. She saw all the discipline it took to be successful professionally, including my fights, like cutting weight and training hard for these fights. And you know, again, she saw just so much professional discipline and work ethic. And she asked me, she's like, how could you do all of that when it comes to your family? You'll quit. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty soul cutting question to, uh, to me. Oh, and, uh, she was right. I've been successful at professional things but when it came to the most important things, being a husband, being a father, I quitting all those things, including my will to live. And I made a radical decision in that moment that I was going to turn things around. And it wasn't a faith decision. I just, I, I knew that I needed to put that same work ethic and discipline that she was talking about into my, into fixing my situation. And I believe God gave me this intuition was that I couldn't do it alone and I couldn't do it with the people I surrounded myself by because I really had surrounded myself with people that told me everything I wanted to hear, not what I needed to hear. I needed some accountability in my life. And so I asked my wife, is there someone at this church you're going to, because she was going to a church at that time, is someone at this church you're going to that could help hold me accountable to this decision? And she introduced me to a man named Steve Tosin. And uh, I remember meeting with Steve at a Starbucks coffee shop and presenting to him an on-paper plan of how I was going to fix my life. It was, it was, I was like, it was like a military five-paragraph order. It was really good. I was super proud of it. And I slid it over to him, and he slid it back over to me and told me I was going to fail. Wow. And being like super offended because like, who is this guy? He's like rude first. <laughs> he won't even look at my plan. But I'll never forget what he did. He tapped on that paper, and he said, if this plan doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, I'm not going to waste your time, and I'm not going to let you waste mine. And I had tried everything. You know, I'd been on a medication. I'd been through programs. I had professional success. Some of those things good. Some of those things bad. Uh, but none of those things changed my situation. We were saying at our foundation, at Mighty Oaks Foundation, if what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? Mm-hmm. Everything I tried didn't work. It was time for me to try something different. And so I trusted this guy, Steve. I surrendered my life to Christ. And beyond that decision, Steve mentored me for an entire year in biblical manhood to learn how to live in spite of what happened to me and really not let my past define my future or take, take biblical principles and, and, and choose different choices moving forward. And so regaining control of my life to live the life that I was intended to live and really intentionally calibrate my life to the life I was intended and created to live. And when I did that um, with intent on a daily basis and failing sometimes and then recalibrating again, when I did that, I began to find restoration in my uh, in my brokenness and my marriage and my life. And, uh, and I began to find hope. And ultimately, I found what I 
so I had my whole life, and that was purpose. Yeah. And uh, that purpose manifested in a deep burden on my heart to share what I discovered with others who were struggling with the same things I struggled with. And that resulted in the starting of Mighty Oaks Foundation and the work that I'm committed I've committed the rest of my life to doing to doing today. Man, oh man, oh man, what a journey, uh, what a life, what a purpose. Mr. Chad Robichaud with us today on Faith Radio's On the Road. The book that we've been talking about, and there's just so much more. He really has application for every single one of us. It's it's remarkable. The book is called An Unfair Advantage, Victory in the Midst of Battle. And sir, this incredible Mighty Oaks Foundation as well. Where can we go to learn more about you, about the foundation, and to pick up a copy of the book, sir? Uh, well, you can go to mightyoaksprograms.org. So any veteran that wants to, uh, our programs, the six-day camps that we run are totally free. We pay for everything, including travel to the programs. Uh, we speak on bases around the world. I've spoken to about 150,000 troops on bases. We've had about 4,000 graduates from our programs. So all that's free to, to the active duty veterans, spouses. We even help take care of first responders. And for those who want to support, it's not free to us, it's free to them. So if you want to support, that's a great place to support. MightyOaksPrograms.org. The book, An Unfair Advantage, can be picked up on Amazon or any or any whatever your favorite retailer is. And uh, it's been doing great. I think it's been it's been it was released uh, through Broad Street Publishing on October sixth, and it's been the Amazon's bestseller list every day since. So it's doing great. Love to have you guys to have a copy. I've given a hundred thousand copies of my books away to the troops, and so wow. when you purchase a copy, it really helps me to be able to afford to give them the troops. So marvelous. Uh, well, sir, thank you so much for your time. I know it's precious. It was great to welcome you back to On the Road, and thanks so much for your service and just for your incredible dedication to. Uh, our country, as well as fellow vets. Thanks so much for having me on. God bless you guys. Thanks for sharing in the story of this latest episode of Faith Radio's On the Road. For more on today's conversation and the full podcast archive of all our episodes, look for On the Road when you visit MyFaithRadio.com. Thanks so much for listening to On the Road. Programming like this happens because of your incredible support. You can learn more about partnering financially at MyFaithRadio.com. And we'd be so glad to connect with you during the week on social media. Just search for On the Road with Ryan Thomas on Facebook. And our Twitter handle is at OnTheRoadRyan. Until next time, God bless you, my friend.